You're listening to the recordings from our weekend with Brad Jerzak. This session is from the Friday, where we had the opportunity to ask Brad some questions over lunch. We hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm Carolyn, or Caro. I'm the pastor of the church that gathers here on a Sunday, and it's really wonderful to have you. I um, wanted Brad to come out because I've been listening to him and reading some of his books for many years now, and was just brave enough to say, hey, will you ever come to Australia? And he said, well, funnily enough, I'm going to be in New Zealand in 2020, so maybe we could tack something on then, and we did. So here he is, and it's amazing. And I, yeah, give him a Thanks for traveling. And I really just wanted Brad to be here to uh, speak into my little community um, as we're journeying along in faith. Um, but we just thought, well, let's just see who else. I didn't know. I mean, I don't know. I didn't know how popular Brad would be. <laughs> I, I don't really know at all. And so we just were like, well, we'll just say anyone can come. And so we did, and you were all here. And now, like, we've got people from Melbourne, Brisbane, Tasmania. Adelaide, Sydney, Wollongong, like I am blown away and thank you for coming and being with us. I think for those people who are journeying towards a more beautiful gospel, there are places and times that can feel incredibly lonely. And um, so my prayer is that today and tomorrow and for those who are around on Sunday, you might just feel like this is a little home away from home for you. And um, so welcome to our community and to our space, um, which is good. So this is what, what we're going to do is I'm going to hand the mic to Brad and I've just asked him to share his story with us for about 10 minutes. Um, so you can hear, you might have heard it before, but hear again just his journey through faith over his young life. And then we're going to eat together and we'll eat together for about I don't know how long it takes to eat. And then we'll just start that time where we can just ask questions and hear from Brad. And so I've got a, a couple of questions already from people. So we'll start with those and we'll just see how we go. And my hope is that, you know, you will just, this will feel like a feast, not just of your body, but also of your mind, your heart, your spirit today. So it's going to be good. So Brad, welcome. Why don't you tell us your story? You want the 10 minute version. <laughs> Okay, so um, my name's Brad, and I have a family back home. Um, my wife is Eden. She was supposed to be here, but she just come out of some thyroid surgery, so we, she had to cancel, and that's really sad. And we have three adult sons. Uh, the oldest is married, and we also have a, we also have a granddaughter who's about, about two years old, so I get to be grampy. And um, <clears throat> so to tell my story in 10 minutes, I have to be selective. Maybe I'll run through it in a couple ways. So that was my family way. In, in um, the, the church journey, was 20 years with conservative Baptists. And then I married into the Mennonites. That's where I was ordained as a minister. And I hung out with them for about 10 years. And at the same time, that's when we connected with friends from the Vineyard Church. So I've never been a Vineyard pastor or anything, but during the, those Mennonite years, we really learned a lot about hearing God's voice and praying for people. And, and um, so the other Mennonite churches called us Bethel Vinonite, and they kind of said it as a slam, but I'm like, no, we love, we love the Vineyard. And they've, they've um, introduced me to 
to the Holy Spirit. And so in my Baptist years, we really learned about, about uh, Jesus, more about Jesus than I would have liked. And then in the Mennonite years, it was like, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you actually believe him, like enough to try to live the Sermon on the Mount. Like, ooh, that's a whole nother level. And then, um, and then at the same time, we became open to the Holy Spirit. After 10 years of that, um, my wife and I were called to plant a church. And so we joined another couple, Brian and Sue West, and we started a church that we thought would be like a renewal church for 20-somethings because we had both been youth workers. And that's not who showed up, at least not initially. It was people with disabilities in full-time care. We had... We had one group show up and then another, and then word got around that we didn't marginalize them or shush them or send them out if they had a seizure. We'd actually bring them into the center of what was happening and saying, what if, what if what God is doing in our church um, is, is right there and that the stage, what's happening on the stage is the distraction. And then when word got out, we ended up growing this church that was one, one third of the people were people with disabilities in full-time care. So we had rows and rows of wheelchairs and we had people with Down syndrome and autism and you name it, and they were really fun. Those, those folks drew in the addicts and suddenly we were having all these people from Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, like just because the addicts found out that um, we wouldn't judge them. They could tell by the way the people with disabilities were functioning, like, oh, it, if they're safe here, we're safe here. And, and then um, a lot of families with kids showed up who didn't feel like their kids could handle a normal church. And then with all that, we ended up having um, people who struggle financially. The, at first it was like the working poor, but then we, the homeless started showing up. And it was just like none of that was planned. And so I led that for 10 years. and. It, and then I had a big crash in 2008 when we had a series of like over 30 tragedies involving overdose deaths and, and, um, and suicides and a gruesome murder and an abduction, like stuff you would normally get from that, the addicts and homeless group. And I got overwhelmed and I'm like, I couldn't hold it together and I couldn't hold me together. And I wasn't sure if I trusted God for the first time in my life. And uh, so I stepped back because I said, like, this is so vulnerable right now. We need somebody sturdy. Uh, two weeks after I stepped down, the church asked my wife to step in. And she became this mama. You know, I don't know if you've seen the Shack or movie or my mom, my, my wife <laughs> became my mom in a sense, um, became mama to a church. And uh, so she'd be like the white version of Papa in the Shack. And um, incredible what she did to heal me and, and this community in pain. Um, meanwhile, I secluded myself in studies and got my PhD, um, uh, mostly research from my bed. You know, uh, I was a real mess. But I was working stuff out there. And when, by the time I got it worked out, um, I graduated and started into a teaching career. Um, theology and culture and the theology of the cross as a response to affliction and things like that. And so 
Um, vocationally, that's where it's headed. But also, at that point, I joined the Orthodox Church. And the reason I did that is because they have a very, very clear theology that God is love, period, plus nothing, in sentence and paragraph. Um, anything else we say about God is only an attribute of his love. So we would never say God is love, but he's also. God is, God is not love, but also holy, righteous, and just. God is holy love, righteous love, and just love, and there's no holiness, righteousness, or justice apart from that love, or it's not God. And in fact, that's what crucified Jesus. The holiness, righteousness, and justice that did not know that God is love. So I, I'm now a messenger of that, and in a sense, from the Orthodox Church point of view, where we say the word mercy or merciful 154 times every Sunday during our liturgy over the course of two hours. So more than once a minute, you're remembering God is mercy and God is merciful and everything else come, flows from that. So, so that's a strange journey through um, Baptist, Mennonite with a charismatic tinge and then the, the, this strange fresh wind church of the disabled, the children, prodigals and the poor. And now, now I... Um, wear a robe sometimes and swing incense and that's so much fun there's like color and i was i grew up in a baptist church where it was sensory deprivation <laughs> it was like this right we had the clouded out glasses glass so you couldn't see trees outside and we wouldn't have mu nice murals like these from scott erickson by the way follow him on instagram you'll see all these amazing stuff Anyway, that not, so it's the, the beauty of it is really important to me as well and was healing to my nervous system that was so damaged after 2008. And I'm, I'm healthier now. I have good, good um, people around me, like especially not to be sexist, but never start a sentence with not to be sexist, but. <laughs> but my primary mentors are, look like Gandalf. Um, old men with long gray beards who tucked me under their wing when I couldn't pray anymore. So I appreciate that. Um, so I, I, I have a couple more minutes where I, I want to share a theme through that whole journey. And that is at some point, I think this is a big theme in the body of Christ on a big, big scale um, that God has begun to pour out a revelation of the Father's love. And it really, especially, I noticed it at first um, through the vineyard and through YWAM when there was a lot of this Father's heart, Father's love. Then the Toronto thing was Father's blessing. Father, 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 Father. And it was, it was this whole prodigal son story as the gospel in a nutshell. And when, here's what I think happened. We began to sing. When you begin to sing what God is revealing, and then wake up with it in the morning, and what he's revealing is that, that we have an Abba who loves us. It begins to take hold and get traction in our lives, and if it sinks deeply enough, certain other things we believe don't make sense anymore. And so what some people are calling deconstruction, um, that's actually a good word for, for it if you use the word correctly. Many people just use it as a trendy word for demolition. What Jacques Derrida did when he coined the term uh, 
this deconstruction word was it's when you slow down, you become more mindful of the words you use and the things you believe, and you become open to, um, to seeing the fresh heart beneath, you know, let's say, beneath the, the layers of grime and varnish and whatever that have accumulated over our precious faith. So I, I feel like it, we're going back to this thing of what if God is love and what would that actually mean if you, if you took it all the way and you can because he's infinite love. And so for me, that included I, um, a, a complete um, uh, restoration project in terms of how I saw the meaning of the cross, what is salvation, and, and then how this, that impacts how we read the Bible, how we read Old Testament violence, how we think about the final judgment, how we think about inclusion of, of people on the margins and the most, margi- the most vulnerable. All of that, all of that begins to shift. So I'm just, for like now 30 years, I've been watching dominoes start falling before the revelation of the Father's heart. And that's what it is. We're, I, I think a lot of you who are going through uh, deconstruction or rethinking faith, if you can understand it as, uh, as the implications of God's love, then you don't have to think about, like, am I going out on a limb here? It's like, no, we're going back to the roots, right down to the very roots of the tree. So one of the things I teach on is early church fathers and mothers and, and how, how they taught uh, God's love as expressed in First John and all of that. So, and now it's lunchtime. So anything to say before we slide over to lunchtime? But before we get into that, I just wanted to share uh, one of the people that I, I, I have read and do read occasionally is a, is a writer and a theologian called Robert Farrar Capon, and I really love his writing. He makes me laugh out loud. But he talks about theologizing, um, which is what, in a sense, we're going to be doing a little bit of here today. Um, talking about God, talking about theology, talking about questions, talking about things that we wrestle with. And the thing that he says about theologizing is he likens it to windsurfing. He says very few people can actually do it. Even fewer people can look good while they're doing it. (laughs) And most of us just end up crashed in the water. And so to start our session with that metaphor in mind, I hope spreads out among us the humility that in some instances we're talking about the God who is known and also the God who cannot be known, the God who can be named and the God who cannot be named, the God whom we catch glimpses of and the God who is unseen and is mysterious. And so to hold with humility our knowing and our not knowing our questions, and even Brad's responses, I think that's important for us, that we're, we're all windsurfing here. We're trying to catch the breeze. It's okay for us to, to make a mess of it. Brad's probably maybe a bit more good-looking at it than the rest of us. But I just think to be asking and seeking questions and answers in humility is a really wonderful thing. So I need to go get my question piece of paper, and I'm going to start with a personal one, Brad. So bouncing off of listening to your story... The first question that someone has sent in is this. Did you and your wife progress at the same rate as your faith evolved? 
How did you manage the inevitable tension of being in different places of understanding regarding your faith? And as you move from one faith community to the next, were you both equally committed to that decision? I need to look at this as I do it. That's a wonderful question. Did you and your wife progress at the same rate as your faith evolved? None of your business. <laughs> no, um, uh, what I meant to say was, not that that would matter. Oh, but it matters greatly for some. You know, in our case, we were very blessed to, to at least f feel like we were walking the journey together most of the time, sometimes um, I would catch a vision of what was coming and what we're meant to pursue. And then she would, it felt like she was being slow or putting the brakes on. Other times I would have a great discovery and then it would be revealed she'd been waiting for me to have this discovery for years, right? <laughs> and yet there was like real harmony in it. And there was a couple reasons for that. One, all to do with mentors again. So one of my mentors, Barry Paul Freeman, sat down with us as we were doing a big phase shift when we were just becoming more open, let's say, to charismatic stuff or whatever, and about moving to the next thing. And, and he said, uh, often in a couple, one partner will have the vision and the other will have the timing. And the one with the vision thinks the one with the timing is dragging their heels, and the one with the timing thinks that the one with the vision is rushing ahead. And so just by saying that to us, we learned, we had like a huge relief of, of being in sync um, or at least learning how to do that dance. Um, so by the time we went to the Mennonite church, we were both convinced that it was time to do that. It was her home church. I tried to sabotage the candidacy and it didn't work and we were called there. By the time we planted fresh wind, we were both ready to go, even at cost of losing all financial backing. We were ready to do that. Um, when I needed to go to the Orthodox Church for the sake of my nervous system and my belief system, um, my wife couldn't make that switch. While she loves the Orthodox community deeply, and she loves the congregation I'm in, and, and is theologically orthodox herself, um, what, what she might, the, the way that community runs is just like not doable for her. Um, we're both egalitarians, so I can attend the orthodox church with male-only priesthood as a dissident. I've made a commitment not to rise higher in the church than a woman can. But my wife is like, yeah, but you've got to stand for two hours. And I'm called to preach. I'm like, absolutely. So she's in another church. And when we have a Russian service, I go over to her church. And um, so this is where, again, a mentor stepped in. It was my godfather, David Goa. And he said this to me. And this would apply not only to couples who are not exactly going the same pace, but even like, how about everybody in the world? He said this. Her name's Eden. He said, Brad? Eden must be completely convinced that you are completely convinced that the path she's on is holy. And she's exactly where she needs to be today. And Christ has put her there. And it's not for you to dissuade her, but as best you can walk together. So even though we're not normally attending the same churches because we have 
pretty profound spiritual needs that require different contexts. We both know for sure that the other is on a holy path. And so then, yeah, but shouldn't you be worshiping together? It's like, wouldn't that be nice if the body of Christ had never divided? <laughs> so we bear the wounds of the body of Christ in our marriage as intercession. So uh, let's see, how do you manage the inevitable tension? Cover that. Or, as you move from one faith community to the next, were you equally committed to that decision? Um, I would say the only time there was she felt like really stressed when I, that it felt too fast when I went to the Orthodox Church. It had only been 10 years. So, um, but what she was really feeling was we won't be sitting together and that's never happened before. And that's painful. And, and we agreed deeply about it. So, we, um, so that was good. All right, do you want to just go through these? Yeah, I, I get bored though, here. So I just thought I'd, I'd interject with this question because it's sort of related, and it's what does a healthy community look like where diverse and even opposing theological views are held? So I guess an extension of what you've been talking about to our communities of faith. Yeah, my, my sense is we've made an idol of sameness, um, same cultures, same... What do you call that? Uh, a homo... A homo... Homogenous homogenous, that, we were taught that in, in like to be a good ch church planner, you put together a homogenous community. It's like that's so contrary to the Holy Spirit. So, um, so what does it mean when we're a diverse community? What would maturity look like? Maturity looks like holding difference and, and not just tolerating but embracing diversity and that seeing how the other doesn't need, doesn't need to... Um, be recruited into my way of seeing things, but we can have really, uh, really fruitful uh, inter interaction. So it's so odd. Like um, it works really well, even even in my interfaith discussions with Muslims who love me and pray for my family, and vice versa. We have moved past common ground into identifying core differences. All, not all of our differences are cosmetic. Some are like right at the core of who we are. Can we still treat each other with respect? If we can, we can move from common ground to sharing our differences to sharing our faith, which isn't the same as common ground. So my friend Safi Kaskas is a Quranic Muslim scholar and, and, uh, and I find myself closer to him in many ways than some of my Christian brothers and sisters because he's committed to Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers. Like he says, unless we obey Jesus, how are we going to get along? And in fact, he'd say, you can't even be a good Muslim if you don't love Jesus. I'm like, really? And so I'm in this weird place of I know some Christ-following Muslims and some non-Christ-following Christians. Um, <laughs> Like really, truly. And so, so then, what, so if we have maturity to hold difference, that's really beautiful. It's just we're not good at it, right? Because we have this fleshy side that wants to create us them binaries. Well, maybe that's the very place where we can transcend the world. And that would be a miracle. So I don't, I, maybe that covers that. All right, back to you, young lady. 
question, still on the more personal side. For those of us with children, what are the most important aspects of our faith that we want to pass down to them? Um, so, so there's a real, there's some real skepticism these days about about indoctrinating children, colonizing their minds. It's like you know what? If we don't sow into them, someone else will. So, what do we want to sow into them? I would say there's a few things where I want my no kids to know some theology and I want them to know some prayer. And here's why I say that: it's not not all gods are created equally. I want them to know that there is a God who is love and, and, and that the other gods, even within Christianity, that are not love are, can be so toxic for them that it behooves me to say, what is God like? So I wrote a kid's book on this called Jesus Showed Us. Here's this premise. If there is a God, I say if not as doubt, but as faith. Because I won't prove it. If there's a God, that God is love. So in the kids' book, I say, what is God like? And on every page, it's a picture of the Jesus story. And I say, God, on every page, what is God like? God is love. How do we know? Jesus showed us. So that's the theology. Jesus showed us that God is love. Period. And then I want to teach them prayer so they can know they don't have a distant, silent, absent God. They have a, a, a God who is loving, caring, forgiving, responsive, and personal. And so in prayer, they, they learn that, but they also learn practices of humility, practices of forgiveness, practices of gratitude that actually, from even a secular point of view, those three things generate resilience in a generation that's the most anxious of any we've known in history. And what do you know? Gratitude, humility, and forgiveness? Maybe Jesus had something to say about that. So th those are Christian values that we're just discovering now, work on Generation Z, as it's like overwhelmed beyond imagination. So I want to, um, so that's what th those would be core things. Yep. Okay. Um, what do you think some of the early church fathers, say Gregory of Nyssa, Irenaeus, Athanasius, uh, would think if they walked into an average Western evangelical church, what would they be encouraged by and what would surprise or worry them about our theology, our buildings, our songs, etc.? Average Western Evangelical Church. <laughs> you just laugh just saying the phrase. That's, well, I'm here all week. <laughs> um, <laughs> what would Paul say? Right? If they're extensions of Paul and, some, and John the Apostle and so on. Um, I think, well, it starts with... Uh, I start with, would they recognize it as church? Um, maybe. So what they might look for that would be encouraging is that um, if, if church is about, is, is the name of Jesus Christ held up here? Okay? Oh, yes. They might be amazed that there's still a church after 2,000 years. And, and they might recognize the fruit of the Spirit 
in the character of the people. So even in churches, let's say my dad's Baptist church, where it's just like I'm so not on that page, but they got the name right. And I see, I see senior citizens like my dad going to the care home to play as baritone for the little old ladies and getting them to knit mittens to take to the homeless in the inner city. I'm like, that's pretty good. He might, so they might be encouraged where they see Christ-like acts of love in the name of Jesus. Um, uh, they, they might be really worried about some of our theology. Um, anything, anything that assigns retribution to the nature of God would really alarm them. And they would probably just say, oh, you're heretics. The father turned his face away? Oh, yeah, we covered that. That's called tritheism or semi-Arianism. We condemned that long before it happened. So um, don't you know how to read a Bible? You know, like they, they might be really, but these guys never kicked heretics out. Even those really serious heresies, they, they treat it as an in-house debate that you just work and work and work together as a family because that comes first. Because schism or splitting was the first heresy. There's nothing you can do or believe worse than that for, for them. So let's say with Arians, which would be almost like Jehovah's Witnesses, they, were, they debated, they never kicked them out. They debated with them for 130 years. So that's pretty good. But it's the ones who stomped out and said, my way or the highway, they were actually identified as the problem. So, so I, I, they might see some of what we, we, we think or believe is crazy, but they would just work with us like toddlers, which we are. Um, what would they be? Uh, and, oh, and what about our theology building songs, etc.? I really believe that they're... That, they were not all just about truth or doctrine. In the ancient world, they believed God is the good. He's good, capital G, and all he does is goodness, and that the goodness is expressed as, as truth, justice, and beauty. So they might look at where we're working hard to work out the truth, and they go, yes, you're really working hard on the truth. And then they might look at, the activists among us who are doing good work on the front lines, oh, you're, you're doing the justice thing. And then they might, and then they might go like, why is it so ugly? <laughs> like, um, so they, they really believe beauty was a criteria for truth. So if you had an ugly gospel, they knew that you'd gone astray. But even in terms of, of, of our buildings, I, um, depends what era you lived in. But I know that when Russia, the Russian emperor thought um, we need to hold together the, our empire with a common faith, he sent out scouts. The scouts came back from Judaism and said, like, there's no way Russia can be Jew like Jewish because it, they're, they're way too legalistic. And they came back from Islam. This, so this isn't the father's era, it's later. But, and, and they said, oh, we can't, we can't possibly be Muslims because, like, they don't drink alcohol. That's not going to work in Russia. <laughs> and then the scouts came back from the Hagia Sophia, the giant church in Istanbul, which was Constantinople. And they said, it was so beautiful. We didn't know whether we are in heaven or on earth. And he goes, that's our faith. And they called, they called for missionaries to come up. Um, 
Kirill Methodius got selected from Thessalonica, and they went up and evangelized all of Eastern Europe. And the hinge point was the beauty. So, so I'm encouraged, like, okay, you've got this old Methodist brick thing, but like, like, look at that, Scott Erickson's stuff. It's like that's really beautiful, and so they might. They might I could imagine the go, them going over there and looking at that. It's like, oh, icons are different now, but you still have them. Okay. For a Christian who understands or is stuck in thinking the gospel is just penal substitutionary atonement, how would you go about helping them to understand the gospel without the outcome of wanting to win a debate, but a genuine hope that you will introduce them to a more Christ-like God and a more beautiful gospel? How do you take them from where they are and help guide them to this end? I'm not sure that's our job, um, but we could walk together, right? And then as we walk together, we could share, like with my Muslim friend, we could share our common ground, we could share our differences, we could share our faith, and what I would do is I, I, I came out of a very hardcore penal substitutionary atonement gospel. We didn't think it was a theory of the atonement. We believed it was the gospel. And, um, and to be faithful to that was to be faithful to the gospel and all other competing accounts were another gospel and therefore I was, I'm not even a Christian to Southern Baptist. You know? Sure. So penal substitution is this, for those who don't know, it is this idea that the gospel is, or one account of the meaning of the cross in terms of how it is that God forgave sin, penal substitution, I'll say it in a crass way, but this is really the essence of it, and I defended this in my master's thesis, and I preached it with an anointing in the church. <laughs> People got saved, <laughs> right? Um, and it was this idea that God actually cannot simply forgive sin. Uh, God must punish it, or he can't forgive. And so he can either punish it in you for all eternity, or he could punish it in his eternal son on the cross. If you believe he did that for you, you'll be saved. If you don't believe he did that for you, you'll be condemned to hell forever. That's the bottom line. And so, um, so there's two layers of that question. The first layer is we could have a doctrinal discussion about, oh, that's one way to see it. Um, here's some scriptures that see it another way. Here's some scriptures that might challenge that way of seeing it. And, um, and here's some metaphors from scripture that, that might be helpful as we move forward. Also, um, when did this idea come about in Christian history? Is it as old as Paul or Anselm or maybe just 1517, John Calvin? Um, what other ways did the early church see the gospel and the meaning of the cross? And so you might have a discussion about that um, that could dislodge really rigid thinking, but that's just one layer. The other layer is if, if you believe, as I did, that penal substitution, that Jesus was our substitute to experience the full penalty of God's wrath, if you think that's the gospel and that to be faithful is to believe that, then anyone with a competing view feels like they're calling you to be unfaithful and worse, leading, leading others into unfaithfulness. So you need to have a faithfulness 
discussion just so that there's not hostility. And so I would, I might identify with their faithfulness and try to demonstrate in my handling of the scriptures and my preaching of a, a beautiful gospel that my agenda isn't apostasy, my agenda is faithfulness. And, that, and to say, could you imagine us disagreeing and both of us being faithful? Now, some can't, because the kind of temperament that's drawn to that theology also can be very us, them, in, out, right, wrong. And, and then I go back to, okay, well, maybe they need to be convinced that I'm convinced that the path they're on is holy. And actually, that was part of my path. And that path got me here. So I can, I can thank fundamentalist, biblicist Brad. Instead of despise him, like, you were, you were really trying to be faithful, and that is what got you here. Maybe they are too, instead of projecting my own embarrassment that I believed that onto them and then attacking it, maybe I could really see, oh, wow, I, I know exactly what you're thinking and why. And you know when it started to unravel for me? And it's like, it's interesting. Will it unravel for you if you start having these thoughts? <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. But can we love each other? And that's the hard part because penal substitutionary atonement also often comes with it, a rejection of the other. And, uh, but lots of us have come through that, so I guess others could too. I'm just always nervous about simply trying to recruit. <laughs> you know, okay. So just to maybe continue on, on that theme a little bit, and there was a few, bit, a few questions that came in on, on a similar theme, kind of contrasting the love of God with some other biblical texts and things like that. So I apologize if I don't read your text, but I'll read this one out. Um, in the Old Testament, God visited his wrath on the Israelites and others alike. They could escape his wrath through the covenant and repentance. Um, in the New Testament, John 3, John the Baptist tells us that those who reject the Son remain in God's wrath. Over the years, we have been told that the blood of Christ has appeased this wrath. Is that true? How do we reconcile a loving God with the notion that this wrath, this fierce anger, lingers for those who reject the Son? I might need that, yeah. Well, this is the whole middle third of my book, A More Christ-Like God, called Unwrathing God. That's the... Um, and that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, too. So, so the Old Testament does describe visitations of wrath on the Israelites. In some of those texts, it projects that wrath onto God. Here's how that happens. There is a trajectory within scriptures of a development of the people of God's idea of God's relationship to wrath. In the oldest iterations of that, they would say God is wrath and the agent of wrath. He's the one who wraths you directly. The second iteration, still in the Old Testament, becomes uncomfortable with that because they realize that to attribute wrath to God is, is it's a projection of violent anger. That's what wrath means, violent anger. And they, and they begin to say, well, that's like God can't have blood on his hands. That's why David didn't get to build the temple. 
well, what's wrong with having blood on your hands? You know, if it's if there's nothing wrong with it, okay. But if he's not allowed to, oh, I see, that's not holy. Well, if it's not holy, God couldn't do that. So what they do is they make a next step and they say, God doesn't directly wrath us, but he sends a hitman. So, so, and his hitman is called the destroyer. And so when, so the first is, when you sin, God is angry, God wraths you. Second one, when you sin, God is angry, God sends the wrather, the wrath or the destroyer. And he does it for God. And then, and then later, um, the later, later, they don't want him to be really sending the wrather, but it's more like he hands you over to the wrather. And it begins to be clear that the wrather is not so much an agent of God, but it could be someone evil like Babylon. That the destroyer might, in fact, not be God's holy angel, but it, but it could even be Satan. And so there's a, a pass, a handing over. Um, and, and then there's like versions of that where it's like he actively gives you to them. Um, and by the time you get to the New Testament, it's more like totally passive. When I turn from the light, I face into the darkness. When I, when, or I actually I create the darkness. Let's put it that way. So here's, we'll say back here is the light of God's love. And I'm, to, I'm called to turn to that light, to remain in that light, abide in that light, receive in that light, live in that light. And when I turn from God, I create a shadow. Everything that happens in that shadow is called wrath. And I might even say, God did this. And they're like, not literally. God warned us, if you turn from the light, you will create a shadow and it will hurt you. So don't. The very fact that he warned us means we blame him. And so that's weird. But like, let's say my mom says, Bradley, do not touch the hot stove or it will burn you. So I touch the hot stove and it burns me. Did my mom burn me? No, my mom can't. She's good. She loves me. She would never do that. So in the sense that, well, is that really the wrath of mom? It's like, it's more like the wrath of disobeying mom, but she's not the cause or the agent. In fact, she was warning me. And then this is just how the New Testament talks then. In him is light and there's no darkness at all. And so why then in those Old Testament stories do they attribute it to God? As Pete N said, because God let us tell the story. They told the story while they still believe those old worldviews. Jesus comes along and says, well, John says this, no one's ever seen God at any time, but God, the only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. And what did he make known? That it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. But that Jesus, who's God, by the way, has come that you would have fullness of life, life in that more abundant, eternal life, and so the call to repent really is really turn back into the light. And what happens to the shadow? It just begins to dissolve. And, um, or it's, or whatever, it's very, you know, it's a spatial metaphor. Give me a break. But <laughs> so repentance is a, is a return to the light. And so, um, 
Uh, and then ultimately, ultimately in the book of Revelation, it just says, oh, and by the way, the destroyer is Abaddon. It's a, it's, that comes out of the pit. So, but even before Christ, even before Christ, um, wrath became the wrath was synonymous with Satan for the rabbis. So it's not the wrath of God anymore. So in, in Romans 5, it'll say that Jesus came to save us from the wrath. Some of our Bibles, trying to be too helpful, added the words of God, and it's not in a single Greek manuscript in Romans 5. Not once. And it's so confusing, and, and NIV or some of these will say, well, it's understood. No, it's not understood. Do not tell people Jesus came to save us from his father. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, saving us from the wrath, which is Satan, which is the darkness we create, which is all the stuff, the natural and supernatural consequences of defiance. God's only place in that is because of love, he consents. He does not coerce us to repent. And so in that sense, it is a handing over. It's a consent to it. But um, So there you have a development of wrath in the... So if you want the full version of that, that's in the... Christ like God book. It's a great question. Oh. We might, I don't know, depending on questions that come in, we might come back to that, that topic, but I'll give Luke a chance to, to read through. Okay, slight, slight turn. Um, being brought up in my particular Christian tradition, when taking communion at church, the main focus is that this is just a reminder of what Jesus has done. And really, all we did was have some quiet time to repent of sins. In your opinion, how are we supposed to approach Holy Communion and what should our posture be as we spend time taking it? I.e., what should we be encouraged to do during communion and how should we be encouraged to think about communion? Yeah, that sounds like my early childhood with communion. Um, the pastors in my church were unable to serve it without using the word just. It's just a this, it's just a that. You just won't find that in the New Testament. This is his body and blood. We don't have to literalize it into turning magically into skin cells and flesh. He doesn't say that. Is, this is my body and blood in some mysterious way that the moment you try to actualize it into something, you end up with church splits over the thing that's supposed to unite us. So how are we supposed to approach it? Well, when I was little, it did mean that. Let a man examine himself and, you know, make sure you're not eating unworthily because if you do, you'll, you could get sick or even die. And so what did we do? We opened ourselves to the accuser for 10 minutes. And we, we gave the accuser a green light to just pummel us. And some of us would weep over it and then the pastor would go, hallelujah, we're in a revival. You know, it's like... <laughs> So I'm not going to tell you how you're supposed to do it. I think there's probably a range of things we could say about it. But here's how I do it. Um, first of all, I, go to, I, I like to go to confession first. And in my confession, I'm not, um, I go and I tell my confessor what my conscience is accusing me of. He doesn't start by saying, what did you do wrong? He says, what's troubling you? And I said, I'm feeling horrible because I mistreated my wife this week. And that his job is, he, he knows there's no problem between me and God. That's been, it's finished. I'm reconciled. I don't have to do anything to make that relationship 
right again. It's, that's, Jesus did that. But I need to be reconciled to my accusing conscience. And, and my conscience then needs to hear the good news that Jesus has forgiven me and, and washed this clean already. So he would say it this way. Oh, you were unkind to your wife. Well, of course. That happens all the time. You're not alone. You're not the only one. This is the human condition. And even though we all try really hard, it's inevitable. We'll be unkind to somebody. But the important thing to remember is this. When you stumble, don't run and hide like Adam and Eve. Don't cover up with fig leaves of denial or justification. Don't hide from God or his face or his word. As quickly as you can, get up and run into his presence and just say, Lord, I did it again. Have mercy. And you know what? He always does. And so just remember, you're already forgiven. So my conscience is hearing this and having to, to remember that its role is not to be the accuser. My conscience's job is to call me home from the pig pen to the father's house, not to make me hide from God. So, and then he, and then, and then, um, and then he says a little prayer. He crosses me on the head and he goes, I'm a man just like you and I have no power to forgive sins. But with the boldness Christ has given us when he said to his apostles, whatever sins you remit, they are remitted. I say to you, your sins are forgiven. And uh, go in peace. Now I, get, now I go to communion. I'm feeling like, oh, I feel better. Um, and so then I come to communion and I would say, I, I, as best I can, I want to approach communion without malice in my heart towards anyone. And because I'm not perfect, I say like the thief, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so, so I come up, I come up having tried to, tr tried to make sure I have no malice in me towards anyone and, and all of that. But really, I know the medicine is in the cup. And I can't make myself worthy. I want to come going as one who has not earned this cup. I'm coming to receive it as a free gift, as, as medicine for my suffering soul as cleansing for the places where I'm still addicted, as, um, as, as life to my bones and to my, so my spirit. And so, um, so those are some things I think about when I come. And then um, cool thing we do in our church is I, as I'm coming up to the Eucharist, just before I take it, I turn back to the congregation who are all singing this. Receive the body of Christ. Taste of the fountain of immortality. Receive the body of Christ. Taste of the fountain of immortality. Out of his blood flowed the fountain of immortality, which is the tree of life. The cross is the tree of life. And now paradise is open and I can receive the fruit of the tree of life that makes me immortal by grace. So I'm thinking that too. So they're all singing this to me. And I say to the people in the front row, forgive me, brother. Forgive me, sister. And the ones in the front are going, God forgives. God forgives. God for and so it's the congregation releasing me. God has forgiven you. And we, as a community, are saying, you can have this meal. Good. And then I turn around and, and, and then I get my communion. So that's one way to do it. The only other thing I'd say about that in terms of diversity is there's some communions that have closed communion and some have open communion. And there's reasons for both. 
closed communion is about seeing this as like a covenant meal for those in covenant. And that makes sense. That's Passover. Um, that's kind of why the Orthodox Church has closed communion. Um, are, are, you, are you in this part of this covenant? But um, I like the idea of an open meal because it's like the banqueting table imagery of Jesus' parables. Um, go out to the streets and make them come in. Like, tell them, this is for you too. And, 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 it, and it's for everybody who knows they need it. And that's the one prerequisite. You need to know you need it. So those are random thoughts about my experience of it. But I really treat it as I'm having this medicine for my sick soul. And I'm having this life into a, bo into a body that is decrepit. <laughs> and I'm having this thing to wash the stuff that showers don't take off. And, and so I experience it as a real, a, a real moment with God. And I've seen a good number, like not tons, but I've seen a good number of people become Christians at the communion table where we would say at Fresh Wind, this is his body for the healing of your body, soul, and spirit. Do you need it? Yes. This is his blood. It can wash away anything. Do you need it? If they acknowledge, I need this and I want it, I think you maybe just became a Christian. <laughs> um, but I've also seen people physically healed. So I'm like, just a memorial? People don't get healed at just a memorial. Uh, they encounter the living Christ in that moment somehow. And so I'm very, I'm very um, committed to the idea that it, it's a climactic encounter with the real Jesus in some way. Just uh, there was an extra question about communion. I'll just you you have touched on it, but so if I was to come to your church, I, I wouldn't be able to receive communion. I'm not Orthodox. What would you encourage me to do as an outsider in that space that would overcome that division that's inherent, but still help me to be connected? First of all, I might tell you to sneak up because <laughs> I'm a dissident. Um, but if they knew, and, and if you snuck up and Archbishop Lazar knew you weren't Orthodox, he'd ignore it. And then afterwards he'd say, I don't think she was Orthodox. <laughs> Father Moses, on the other hand, might try to intervene. So what I, would do, what I might do instead is I would bring you up and with, I'd go with you. I wouldn't send you up, I'd go with you and I would say, um, this is my friend and she has had Trinitarian baptism and she would like a blessing today so they might bless you. But also, that's not all of communion for us. So in addition to the Eucharistic cup, we also have blessed bread from the same loaf and anybody can have that, followed by the agape meal. So Paul talks about an agape meal, a feast afterwards, we hardly do that anymore, but he's like, that's part of the Eucharist. And not only would you be eating with us as a community, I would make sure you're at the head table. And so you would sit with the Archbishop as his guest of honor. So that would help a little bit. Some Orthodox churches, some Orthodox churches have also added, added wine. as that's like separate bread and separate wine. Just so they're like, yeah, we get it. The reason why... So, while I disagree completely with withholding communion from anyone, 
while I disagree with it completely, it's not just because they're idiots. Um, there's a reason. Here's the reason. I'll give you an analogy. If I, I had a woman come, a young woman come to me, early 20s, a while back, she wanted to be baptized. I'm like, oh, great. When did you decide to follow Christ? She goes, oh, I haven't. I'm like, but you want to? No. I'm like, well, but you want to be baptized? Yes. I'm like, well, why would you do that if you won't make a commitment to following Christ? Because that's kind of what it is. And she's like, well, I'm taking all the initiation rites from all the religions. And I'm like, in ours, the baptism is a confession that you're going to follow Christ. And she goes, oh, I don't want to do that. I just want to be baptized. I'm like, I don't think you're hearing me. <laughs> I wouldn't be baptizing you. I would be bathing you. <laughs> and my wife's not okay with that. And so she was all angry and like, well, they, they're closed. They wouldn't even baptize me just because I didn't believe what they believe about it. Ah, so a Baptist comes to an Orthodox church and they're like, that's not his body or blood. That's just wine and juice. And it's a memorial. It's not real. There's nothing to that. And they're like, should we give it to you then? For the same reason I wouldn't baptize her. So that's why they do it. But I'm like, no, you know very well that you're a follower of Jesus. These are priests, not policemen. So that's why I'm a, I would, I just believe in open communion. And so that's one of the areas I'm a dissident in the Orthodox Church and I can do nothing about it, but I know the Archbishop can ignore that you might not be. So I'm glad when he does. Good question. Great, okay, question about the Bible. Scripture encourages us to have faith like a child, and Jesus said, let the little children come to me. However, the Bible, which we say is inspired by God, often feels like a massive labyrinth with multiple wrong turns, depending on interpretation. And you touched on that when you talked about that passage in Romans chapter 5 where they've added of God, which would be common in every current translation, translation of our scripture, So, but it's not really in the original, which... Anyway, that's some of the tension of this. Um, this is from someone. My children who are young adults now no longer want to read their Bibles because they find it so confusing and don't have confidence to navigate through it correctly. They have seen and lived the effects of wrong believing all their lives up until the last five years. Um, how can I help them navigate through scriptures without the fear of wrong believing? And how can I help them hold on to the belief that the Bible is inspired by God? They know that there are so many variants and even scriptures added later, and they ask me, who is right and how do we know? I don't know how to help them when even I feel like one has to be a theologian to make sense of the Bible. Please help us all find our confidence in the Bible again. <laughs> just, just like, yeah, yeah, just, you know. <laughs> so they're like... That's, that's like saying, I, can't, I don't want to read the Lord of the Rings anymore. Because, you know, it, there's a meandering epic saga here, and I don't have patience for certain of the characters. It's like, what? No, it's a genius story. It's a grand story with crazy characters, unreliable narrators, and an inspired author. And that's just the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and the Bible functions this way. If you can... If you can teach them that we have an epic saga in which 
People are meandering their way forward on this horrendous trail like Frodo and Bilbo, and then finally, um, finally, finally, the author himself takes the risk of coming into the story, and they kill him. This is unbelievable. It's the most amazing story. That, and he rises from the dead. Are you kidding me? You know, like, and, and to treat it as, to treat it really as a, I don't have a lower view of scripture now. I have this massive view of scripture where it's like we have a, we have, we, we have a divine author who has sanctioned the people of God to record their long journey with him, including all their horrendous mistakes. And then make sure we're not lost by coming in himself and saying, okay, now here's how it really is. And he just like tells you the, the punchline. He is the punchline. I'm the punchline. It was all about me in the first place. It's like, what? How is it about you? Oh, all the times when the people of God had victories. It was prefiguring my even better victory where no one has to die. All of the times when the people of God suffered defeat and humiliation and exile were prefiguring my willingness to experience torture and murder and hell at the hands of my enemies for you. Every time the people of God oppress somebody else. It prefigures the Sanhedrin and the temple establishment taking the Son of God, like nailing them to a cross. You're like, oh my goodness. And what, is, and what does God do? From that cross, he completely overcomes the problem of sin, the problem of darkness, the problem of fear, the problem of death. It's like epic. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm here. behold, I'm restoring all things. I'm like, that's a story I can jump into. I'm like, our problem is it's like we went to book one, chapter 40 of Lord of the Rings, and we're like, I don't like this chapter. And then we take it literally as if it's, as if it's like the point. It's not the point. The point happens when the ring of power goes into Mount Doom, which I myself did last week. Um, <laughs> so let me read you a poem some of you have heard this. It's called Reading the Bible Right. And this is, this is perfect, like just for orienting um, young people especially. Uh, it's called, reading the Bible Right. Right, Brian's on. It's a story. We're telling news here, keeping alive an ancient epic, the grand narrative of paradise lost and paradise regained. The greatest once upon a time tale ever told. The beautiful story which moves relentlessly toward they live happily ever after. Never, never, never forget that before it's anything else, it's a story. So let the story live and breathe and thrall and enchant. Don't rip out its guts and leave it lifeless on the dissecting table. Don't make it something it's really not, a catalog of wished-for promises, an encyclopedia of God facts, a law journal of divine edicts, and a how-to manual for do-it-yourselfers. Find the promises, learn the facts, heed the laws, live the lessons, but don't forget the story. Learn to read the Bible for what it is. God's great, big, wild, and wonderful, surprising ending love story. Let there be wonder. Let there be mystery. Let there be tragedy. Let there be heartbreak. Let there be suspense. Let there be surprise. Let it be earthy and human. Let it be celestial and divine. Let it be what it is and don't try to make it perfect where it's not. This fantastic story of creation, alienation, devastation, incarnation, salvation, restoration, with its cast of thousands more Tolstoy novel than a thousand-page sermon. It's a story, because we're not saved by ideas, but by events. Here's a plot line for you. Death, burial, and resurrection. 
Yes, it's a story, not a plan, not an ology, not an ism, but a story. And it's an amalgamated patchwork story told in mixed medium. Narration, history, genealogy, prophecy, poetry, parable, psalm, song, sermon, dream and vision, memoir and letter. So understand the medium and don't try so hard to miss the point. <laughs> try to learn what matters and what doesn't. It's not where and when Job lived, but what Job learned in his painful odyssey and poetic theodicy. It's not how many cubits of water you need to put Everest under a flood, but why the world was so dirty that it needed such a big bath. Trying to find Noah's Ark instead of trying to rid the world of violence really is an exercise in missing the point. Speaking of missing the point, it's not did a snake talk, but what the freaking thing said. <laughs> I believe his original says, damn. <laughs> because even though I've never met a talking snake, I've sure had serpentine thoughts crawl through my head. Literalism is a kind of escapism by which you move out of the crosshairs of the probing question but parable and metaphor have a way of knocking us to the floor. Prose flattened literalism makes the story small, time confined and irrelevant. But poetry and allegory travel through time and space to get in our face. Inert facts are easy enough to set on the shelf, but the story well told will haunt you. Ah, the story well told, that's what is needed. It's time for the story to bust out of the cage and take the stage and demand a hearing once again. It's a story, I tell you, and if you allow the story to seep into your life so that the story begins to weave into your story, that's when at last, my friend, you're reading the Bible right. Whew. That's online, reading the Bible right, Zond. So that's kind of how I, I just like, you can hear the wonder in this, right? You can hear the, wah, and, uh, and, and then and the, just how it comes to a focus, especially at the cross where God, God is revealed as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. So, yeah, yeah no, that's good. One, one quick question before uh, we'll, we'll eat dessert. So in light of that story kind of and ex, uh, exploring that literalism versus story, um, so does it matter if Jesus died or more importantly rose from the dead? Uh, yeah, so when we're talking about mixed medium, we're not saying everything in the Bible is allegory. You heard a whole list, right? Gospels are a specific kind of genre um, in which eyewitnesses reflect on the meaning of real events. That's the, the gospel genre. In that is subgenres like parables and so on. Does it matter whether Jesus died and rose again? Yes, here's why. Oh, I mean, other than Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 15. But wh why does he say so? It's, it's not whether he's resurrected. It's whether he's alive. If Christ is not risen, not was, is. If, if Christ is not risen, he's not alive. So what are we doing? Just like following the ethics of a man who got killed? Bad idea. Go for hedonism. No, not really. It's actually, he did show us a better way to live, to have me real meaning in the face of suffering. But um, the question is, um, if he's alive, that makes all the difference for whether I'll, I can be alive. Uh, and so it's not just life after death, but life before death. And so I don't, treat as, I don't treat his death and resurrection as metaphor because the Bible doesn't. In the story... He's risen, and that changes the world. Prior to that, 
even the idea of being kind did not really occur to humans as, as a way to live. And Jesus comes in and we're still, we're living those changes into what it is to be human. Um, I'll just say it a little further. I, I think the way forward for Christianity is, is, is going to be mystical, must be mystical. And that means, and I, don't, I used to say, it means not believing in Jesus as an idea, but as, but as a person who's alive, who I encounter. Now, I, when I say that, some people go, well, I've never had a dramatic encounter. It's like, I didn't say dramatic. So maybe I need a better word like connection. What we are offered is a connection with the living God through Jesus. And I've experienced that. And I lead others to experience it. Authentic connection that transforms. Apart from the resurrection, I don't know why that would happen, except maybe a head game. So um, head games don't cause the things I've seen. And maybe, yeah, so that's what I would be heading for. The importance of, the, uh, of reading the genres as each genre intends. And the gospel genre intends, a, intends to show us a, that our God is divine, a divine human who's alive right now. So we don't even go in the early church. They wouldn't go to the empty tomb to prove Jesus rose. You'd go to church. How did going to church prove that he rose? You're with people who know him and aren't afraid of death anymore. And uh, that you experience him there, not at an empty tomb. So that's my conviction. And not all of my brothers and sisters see it that way, but that's, that's where I've landed. And for those who, who don't think that way, like I think they're probably heretics, and we're in the family together. <laughs> and so we walk together, and it's like, they convince, try to convince me I'm wrong, and I try to, I try to say, like, here's why I think you're wrong, and, and now let's have another glass of wine. So, yeah, great question. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull us back in so we can get maybe a sneaky ten more minutes of questions before we wrap up. Luke's got a few extra questions on the phone, so. And you want to say something extra? Do you want to say something extra first? Okay. Um, uh, so earlier, earlier we had had a question about about uh, one way of seeing the cross, and that was penal substitutionary atonement. That God was punished. God punished Jesus for your sins, like punished Jesus in your place, so He doesn't have to punish you. It'd be, it'd be a little bit like me beating up my son so I don't have to deal with the kid who broke my window across the street. So, um, but I thought, well, I didn't really say what I do think. Here's what I think. The cross is about, why did Jesus die? A, because we killed him. God sent his son into the world as perfect love, and our instinct was to murder him. And that's what Stephen says in, in Acts. It's actually... The gospel, every time it's preached in Acts, is God sent him, you killed him. Nothing about wrath. Not once. If that's an important part of it, every single evangelist in Acts failed to preach the gospel. So, um, so how I would say it is this, that the cross 
is a definitive revelation of the nature of God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And then it's in a decisive victory over darkness, dread, and death with light, love, and um, I have another L word, light, love, and what would you for? And life, that's First John, right? Light, love, and life conquer, conquer darkness, dread, and death. And so, you, so it's not just a revelation of what God is like. It, there really is something happens in space-time history that instantiates, that means causes an instance of, becomes the instance of something eternal. That God is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But it's not true unless it happens here. But because it, So time and eternity actually intersect and become one in that, in that moment. So that that work that can work in in when I'm sharing my faith with someone I'm like here's what I think God is about God is love and Jesus showed us this and he showed us especially on the cross where we see this definitive revelation and this decisive act and that means that means you don't have to be afraid anymore that's sort of how Hebrews 2 does it that Christ takes human flesh in order to conquer death itself so that death and the fear of death are overcome. And um, that's one way of talking about the gospel. Another one, uh, another would be have to do with something to do with this fullness of life. I have a feeling that's how we need to preach the gospel for the younger ge next generation. That, that um, the good news is that your telos, what it is for you to become the most you, it will look like fullness of life. And, and Jesus made that possible. How did he do that? Well, let me tell you. So, all right. Um, so there's been a couple of questions coming in about salvation, heaven and hell and things. So I'll read this one first and then it might lead on to the next one after you've had a go at this. Um, so there's been a lot of interesting theology emerging around hell. And the idea of considering that maybe it looks different than what we've been taught. Is it an actual place? When it speaks of fire, is it eternal fire or possibly a cleansing fire? So many questions are being asked. What are your thoughts on this, uh, on this topic based on what you've read? Um, so I gathered a lot of what I've read into a book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. And in that book, I go through every text in all of the Bible that translates words into hell or Hades or something like that and also all the imagery and the criterion criteria that's the plural criteria and who goes there and what blah 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 right so there, that takes a whole book what could I say sh briefly so within the scriptures and within Christian history you tend towards three Ideas. One is that that heaven and hell are two places that two sets of people go to. And I could do a great Bible study proving that that's correct. There's another view that says um, that what we're waiting for is resurrection and eternal life and that those who, who um, are oriented towards Christ will experience that and the rest will experience non-being or annihilation. And I can do a nice Bible study on that for you. And then, and then we also have 
and this has been massively underestimated, that the, that the scriptures foresee a divine judgment through which all will pass and ultimately every knee will bow, tongue will confess, and God will be all and in all. And so some call that universalism, but that's pretty sloppy language because a lot of universalists don't believe that sin is a problem, that Jesus is necessary, that response is a requirement, or that judgment's going to happen, or that the cross means anything. So that's too big of a brush. What I would call it is ultimate redemption, that we need a redeemer, and we have one, and we will be. So you got these three... I could break them down into seven, but like we'll take those three categories. They're in the Bible, and they're difficult to, to harmonize, <laughs> or it may be impossible. In the early church, you had people holding to the different views, and none of them were considered heretics. So they carefully write the Nicene Creed so that you could believe any one of those. In the Creed, all you're required to confess at your baptism is, he'll come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, it does not describe the nature of judgment. It could be a cleansing judgment. In fact, I think it is. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Nothing about hell. Um, in, the, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, hell is mentioned, but it's Jesus dies, descends into hell, and returns from it, with a, and, and the idea being to conquer it, and that hell's power is broken, whatever it is. So... The question included, like, so what is it? Is it, a, is it eternal? Is it a place? Um, depends which passage you're engaging, but here would be a way of seeing it. I'll break it down to two categories now. In the West, we tend to see hell as the place where the bad people go who have rejected Christ. The wicked, the goats. So two places. Oh, and it's a, away from God. You're, it's an absence of God the outer darkness, you're locked out. In, in, and in the Eastern Church, they would say, no, God is the fire. And everyone must pass through the fire, and the fire is the glory of the love of Christ. As everyone passes through the fire, that fire consumes all the wood, hay, stubble, attachments, and chains that would prevent you from entering the kingdom of heaven. And only God is eternal. And so as we pass through the fire of his love, there is a cleansing. Um, some Orthodox would say, and, and well, let me back up. And so then if your orientation towards eternal, the eternal fire of love is love, you experience the love of God, the fire of God is heaven. If you hate love, if you resist love, if you reject love, you experience that same fire um, as torment. So some Orthodox think that's a now a permanent state. You are burned or you enjoy or are tormented by the same love of God for all eternity. But a lot of us, maybe most of us even, we look at that and go, no, the fire of God's love is effective. It doesn't leave the chains there. It doesn't leave the defiance there. It actually melts the hard heart so you can be truly free. And in true freedom, of course you'll respond. So um, so I can't, I'm not allowed to teach that as doctrine because it's not dogma, it's not in the creed. But I can hold it as a conviction and I'm allowed to share my conviction. So I, I do see what we largely talk about 
So that's one way of seeing hell in terms of judgment, fire, love of God, cleansing. But you've either got other versions of it in the Bible. So one would be like sometimes hell is the kingdom of Satan. So in James, where is hell? Hell is in you igniting a slanderous tongue. Or, but also you have a spring of living water in you that ignites an encouraging tongue. And so heaven and hell are in you and you have to traverse them. And, and where you are in orientation to those two parts of you affects how you talk. It's really it's a unique way of seeing it. And then the other is, oh, yes, I believe in a literal hell. I've been there. It's, it's downtown east side Vancouver where half the people are like have less consciousness literally than a dog because they're so wired on meth. I've been in the, board, the, the refugee camps on the border of Burma with people who've been raped and molested and, and blown up and they're limbless and they, their faces have been blown off by landmines. I'm like, I've been in hell. That's actually how the Bible talks about hell sometimes, the Valley of Gehenna after Israel's been destroyed. And so, so you got these different elements of it. I think that covers it. If you've not, so Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, that's the book I did on it. And uh, the reason I called it that was because at the end of Revelation, you see the righteous go into eternal life and the wicked go, and it lists the wicked, are thrown in the lake of fire. But there's two more chapters. The very next chapter says, and then after this, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And the bride, the city of God, comes out of heaven and God's in the midst of her and the wicked are outside the city. And it lists them. It's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be in the lake of fire. How'd you get over here? Well, it's a different image. And then it says... And then the spirit and the bride say, come. And the gates are never closed. And the kings bring the nations, in, right, the, the glory of the nation into the city. And there's trees of life there. And the, the, the nations are eating these leaves and they're being healed. It's like, who, who did we think the bride was inviting? The people outside the city. Oh, so there's this hope of a response ultimately. Let me reword the question. <laughs> Here's how I'd ask it now. Does the New Testament foresee the salvation of all? Yes, 32 times roughly. Uh, it also has judgment texts that seem absolute, like permanent exclusion. How do you put them together? I used to think you just simply can't. So that's why we have humility about this. You've got texts where it's, you are locked out and there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. And Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. As in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. And it's like, how much more in Christ? How much more, how much more? So, so I used to just go, Ugh, I can't harmonize them, so we'll just have a humility of hope. That's how I would describe it, humility of hope. There's another way to approach that that I'm finding more convincing, that the New Testament establishes three ages, this present evil age, the life of the age to come, and then the end of the ages. In this present evil age, we often experience hell on earth, 
in the age to come, you can put all the judgment passages where we pass through judgment. And then at the end of the ages, mercy triumphs over judgment. So you could just put the universalist text there and the judgment destruction text there. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not teaching that as dogma, but I, I'm, I'm investigating that. It seems like a way to not marginalize any text. What I know for sure, though, is the, what I call the infernalist position that believes that some people must be in hell for all eternity have to marginalize the universalist texts and not take them seriously at all. Like, here's how I would do it back in the day. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should re receive eternal life. You know what we did? We added all Christians. I'm like, okay, now we're just screwing with the Bible. And, and like, come on, right? So, yeah, so, so, uh, there's a great book now. <laughs> the tone is really nasty, but uh, that all shall be saved by David Bentley Hart. Um, he believes that all shall be saved through faith in Jesus Christ who has provided the way. Um, um, and what, what his, he's, it's like I've been bullied over this for 20 years. And then David Bentley Hart comes along, and he's a bigger bully. And he bullies the bullies. So I kind of enjoy that. But it's still like he's been critiqued for his tone, but his arguments, it appears to me, are irrefutable. So I'd, I'd suggest that book. But if you want a nice, gentle, kind one, get mine. So. <laughs> Mine's very humble. <laughs> well, we're coming to the end of time, no, our time with Brad. Um, and I want to be mindful of being, you know, we said we'd finish about 2.30. So I want to say thank you, Brad, for all your wisdom. It's been like a feast, hasn't it, for our minds. And, it's, and actually, I should have said this right at the beginning, but we have recorded today. And if it's okay with Brad, we'll edit it and make it available to you. So if he said something wonderful and you failed to be able to write it down really quickly, we'll, we'll figure out a way to do that. But I, I want to say thank you, Brad, because I think one of the things you've really helped me in my spiritual journey is um, to be able to be kind to all the versions of myself that have been trying to follow Jesus. And as I've listened to your story and the way you tell it, like there, there has been things you've moved through and beyond, but you can hold the beauty of those traditions and those styles alongside the critique of how they've been unhelpful. And I'm really grateful for that because it models to us a way that we can be kind to ourselves and also to other Christians who aren't on the same page as us. So I want to thank you for, for your graciousness in that, for the way you model that to us of how to do it. And I also want to say thank you for all um, your faithfulness through hard and dark times and I'm presuming through lots of opposition to just keep wrestling um, with where God is leading you because it is, it's producing something beautiful for us on the other side of the world. So thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for being brave enough to speak it um, because we, we've gathered from all around our country to hear you and we're very grateful. So, so thank you. Let's give, let's give Brad a cheer. It's been wonderful. Um, but just before we finish, I think um, what I'd like to just lead you in is just a moment of reflection. Um, 
so that, you know, we, we've heard a lot and my, my, my ears feel like they're singing and my mind feels like it's like, it's enjoying itself. But I also know that I'm a spirit and I'm a body. And so I want to just make sure that we're not just engaging in the head, but that we're actually coming back to our bodies and to our spirits and just, just letting God just be with us in this moment. So um, just make sure, I would just like, if, if you allow me to lead you in a little moment, that would be great. So just make sure you're comfortable. I just, I, I want to lead you in something bodily, and, but, but just a prayerful reflection. And I just invite you to close your eyes. And take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And just let the breath of God fill your lungs. And as you're inhaling the the breath of God, may you know that it's life, life to your body, life to your soul, life to your spirit. And I just want to invite you to hold your two hands out in front of you. And I want you to just imagine that in your right hand, you're placing all of the joy and all of the goodness and all of the yes, I wish I could say it like that, all of the answered questions, all of the hope that you've heard not only today, but that you hold in your life. Would you just imagine all of that goodness resting in your right hand? And then as your left hand is also out before you, would you imagine all of the questions that you still have? All of the mystery, all of the doubt, all of the struggle that you also hold. Both are true in you. Both the joy and the struggle. Both the answered questions and the doubts. Both the yes and amen, as well as the I wonder if. And I just want to invite you to put those two hands together and maybe you just like to put them over your heart or just bring them into your chest. And I want you in your own way to just acknowledge that both of those are true for you. Both of those hands make up who you are. And I want to remind you this afternoon that you are in God. Both those hands are in you and you are in God. And God is in you. And he is well pleased with you. He loves you with immeasurable love. And he delights to see you walk your path of faithfulness in him. And so Jesus, would you take all that we are? Let us not hide any bit from you. Let us know that all of us is held in the loving arms 
of God. Lord, we trust you with our journeys. Help us to trust you with our journeys. And Father God, over each person here, I speak a blessing. I speak a blessing of joy as they leave this place. I speak a blessing of fresh air. I speak a blessing of a good afternoon. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be close to each one of us as we remember today. And in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we say thank you, God. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.